right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Borkowski, and this is a podcast about eh, just about everything related to belonging, cultivating community, making connections in all sorts of spaces and the places we walk and the virtual places where we find ourselves these days. But I think that the topics that we talk about on this podcast or I talk about on this podcast, and I've had two guests, so sometimes I can say we, I suppose. I think these topics are relevant in a lot of spaces, meetings, organizations, schools, neighborhood, community, communities, church organizations. So I hope there's a little bit of everything for folks in all sorts of contexts. So this is episode 14, if you can believe it, and I'm calling it Lollipop Lesson, Putting the Mystery Back in Teaching and Learning. I got to tell you, this is, I think this podcast episode is going to be a good one. I hope it is. And I think it's going to be funny and light, but also valuable. I have to tell you, though, I'm going to start this episode out by letting you know, week four of homeschooling was rough. I had a rough week. And I don't know where everybody else is with their sort of timelines related to COVID. You know, maybe you're in week three of virtual or remote work. Maybe you're in week five or six of homeschooling, depending on what state you're in. Maybe you're transitioning back from COVID, depending on what country you're in. But wherever you are, my guess is you have had a few tough moments during this virus. And I don't know about you, but I just haven't been able to put my finger on it. I, I think, to be honest, that part of it is just the reality of the virus. Look, the first couple of weeks, and you can ask my friends and a couple of my colleagues, it was kind of a comedy of errors around our house. I mean, it's no no surprise that I have shared several times that I was not built to be a K-12 teacher, especially not to my own kids. And I just have more and more admiration and gratitude towards our K-12 teachers that, that do this day in and day out and love it and do it su in such an amazing way. I think as I approached week three and got into week four, the reality of my son Colby's schedule, my twin five-year-old schedule, my work schedule, and everything else that we all have going on, in addition to being away from our neighborhood, the parks, and family, I just got tired. And I miss, I so miss the connections with my friends, family, and neighbors. And in a way, that's kind of funny because I've always, I, not always, but for the last four years or so, I've been working remotely. We live in Massachusetts away from most of our family. So it's not like I'm bumping into family on a regular pace, on a regular basis. But I was talking to a good friend today and it was almost like this COVID-19 has made us realize something that we wouldn't have otherwise named, which is I just enjoy being out in the world. And, and I'm not just talking about, you know, sitting with a really good friend at a coffee cup, a coffee cup at a coffee shop, sit, sharing a cup of tea or going to a restaurant or listening to a cool band or taking the kids to the beach. I'm not just talking about those kinds of relationships. I'm talking about those impromptu run-ins with, you know, acquaintances, neighbors, maybe total strangers, and just sharing a smile, a glance, a hello you know, giving a helping hand, just being out and about and around other people without worrying about this crazy virus. So I really miss being in the world. And last week I went to the grocery store for the first time since the CDC recommended face masks. And, and honestly, I just have to say it was really unnerving. When I got there, I put on my gloves. I put on my makeshift mask that was out of a bandana and hairbands. I stood in line outside the grocery store, six feet apart from other people who some were wearing um, masks and gloves. And I followed the guidelines of the store, you know, one way aisle so you wouldn't bump into each other, keeping six feet between each other. And it just made me realize that the way we walk through the world, even without saying a word, communicates so much to other people. We just all look nervous and worried and apprehensive and fearful of saying hello or sharing a glance. And I just hope that when we come out of this, and we will, 
that we can restore these connections and community that's been put on pause with this virus. Again, I just, I really enjoy being in the world. Um, It's, it's, I just, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe that sounds weird that I'm, I'm recognizing that, but naming it that way just makes it more important to me and really made me realize. And so perhaps, you know, maybe that's a silver lining. I'm really trying to say and versus, but more in my life. And so maybe the end of the COVID-19 virus for me right now is recognizing what's important, what I need and what I value um, and realizing it's, it's actually quite simple things being able to be out in the world. So I didn't mean to be a downer. <laughs> I just really wanted to be honest with you. I'm a um, co-host of another podcast called For Learning Educators. It's, um, it's a, I really enjoy doing it. I think it's a good, a good podcast. And it was start, we started a few months ago. I do it with three other colleagues and We've been using some of Brene Brown's work from Dare to Lead, and one of the things in her book is about values and how organizations and individuals and groups often identify a list of values that they, they ascribe to. And what she and her team suggest is that you choose one or two, and they actually provide a list of sort of the constructs or concepts that sort of make different values. And so we as a team each sort of you know, named our value on one of the episodes and we had to report back the next podcast episode we do once a month on how we were living that value. And so I think part of my honesty today is me continuing to try to live one of my values, which is authenticity. And I recognize that the way I'm feeling, the way I'm thinking, you know, acts as a lens and a filter for how I express myself and how I interpret things. And so I just think it's important for you to know where I am. And I think the other reason I share it is because as as Brianne and I talked about last week on the episode, there's a shared vulnerability here. And even if we're in different contexts, even if we're in different roles, if you have kids or don't have kids, whatever your situation with this COVID-19, I feel fairly certain that you have felt similar or maybe exactly like I'm describing, I wouldn't be surprised if we were having those similar feelings. I was talking to a few friends over Facebook last week because I've never been a big Facebook fan, but that's what we do now, and I actually have have started to enjoy it. Um, My pastor, my minister from our church was just checking in with the congregation, and I shared that I often feel like I'm on a roller coaster with COVID-19, and I say this because, and I should make this clear, I love roller coasters. I have been on tons of them. I can ride them more than once. The higher, the better, the faster, the better, the more loops, the better. I just love them. So going down those hills, those steep, crazy hills that almost look like it's straight down, the click, click, click of the climb to that first big hill, it's fun, it's scary makes you laugh, you get silly, you scream, it's exhilarating. And yet I have to tell you, and this happened the last time I went with my niece, after about five times of the like big roller coasters in the park, I turned to my niece and I said, you know, I need to get off for a few minutes. I need a break. I need to sit on the bench, have a cold drink and catch my breath. And so maybe this is what's going on. Maybe I hit the fourth week, and maybe I just roller rode the roller coaster one too many times. And so I needed a pause. I needed a break. I needed a cool drink and a sit on the bench to rest and reflect. And so I share this to live my value of authenticity, but I also share this because I think it's important that we tell each other and remind each other that this is a struggle, that we'll have ups and downs, that there'll be days that we can't get on that roller coaster. And you know what? That is perfectly okay. And if you're having one of those days or you have one of those days tomorrow, so what? Do what you can, pat yourself on the back for doing it and move forward. That is all we can do is the best we can do, right? Um, So hang in there. I know this is tough. I'm hoping it's going to get better until you know, until it does, we have each other and just keep talking about what we're doing and how we're feeling. So again, I don't mean to be a downer. I just wanted to be honest, name where I am and what I'm feeling. And I'm hoping for a better week. And I did have a great weekend. 
the weather was finally beautiful. We got rid of the rain for a little while, went for a great run, had an awesome bike ride yesterday. I had the music blaring in my ears. And for a split second, I actually forgot that we were under this cloud of COVID-19, which was awesome. Played hopscotch miserably with my daughter, but I did it. I used sidewalk chalk and drew a, a flower for her. Sarah told me it was beautiful. I don't know if I believed her, but she seemed to like it and just had a really good day with the kids. So in today's episode, and as I said, Lollipop Lesson, Putting the Mystery Back in Teaching and Learning, episode 14, if you can believe it, of Tell Me This, I wanted to share some new learning that has happened for me during this period of homeschooling. So in this four weeks, getting into the fifth week, I actually feel like I'm learning maybe more, at least as much as my kids are. And I just think what I'm going to share gives us another sort of window into how we can build community, connections, a sense of belonging for people in our worlds, whether it's meetings, group settings, school, virtual classes, time with family, whatever that group setting looks like, I think the discussion I'm going to have on the podcast today gives us just another way to, to build belonging and cultivate community among us. So in this case, this particular case, the example comes with my kids, of course, because I've been spending so much time with them. And it happened in the context of what our oldest son, Colby, likes to call our playroom, the one room schoolhouse. And again, I think this this idea has application in other spaces, face to face, online meetings, projects, all sorts of gatherings. And I will say that this idea of co-construction, which is what I'm going to talk about today with respect to schedules and other things, it's not new. I'm not, I'm not pretending that it is. It's been around. But I do think given what we're facing with COVID-19, homeschooling, virtual learning, virtual meetings, virtual everything, to be honest, there's an opportunity for some real application that is actually pretty easy to implement. It does take a little bit of practice. I think the hardest part is the con- release of control that the facilitator needs to take and then the trust, but everyone can and should do it. So what's the plan for the episode? Well, if you've been listening to my podcast for a little while, you kind of know the rhythm of this this uh, this thing, I guess. It is I will share a few stories, I will offer a few takeaways, and then I will hopefully connect what we've been, what I've been talking about with some research, and then I'll do a wrap up. So in the next segment, I will share two two stories about two Sarahs, one Sarah being my daughter and the other Sarah being my grandmother, who this podcast is sort of dedicated to and and trying to honor her memory. So I hope you will stick around. I do think it's going to be a fun and funny episode. So please stick around if you can. Thanks for joining me. My my name is Carrie Borkowski and this is Tell Me This and I'll be right back. Thanks. All right. Welcome back to Tell Me This, episode 14, Lollipop Lesson, Putting the Mystery Back in Teaching and Learning. And as I started to allude to at the end of the last segment, this really is about co-construction of knowledge, co-construction of schedules and ideas. And as I said, this isn't new. I'm not professing that it's something new that I've come up with, but it is new for me in the sense that I sort of had an aha moment in the third week of homeschooling. Um, thanks to my daughter that you'll hear in a second. And so in this episode, I'm going to talk about voice and choice, the research behind what I'm calling a mystery block. So co-creating a schedule and other routines, considerations for the facilitator, the meeting organizer, the instructor, the leader, whatever, whomever that is, whether it's an individual or group sort of leading an effort. And then I'll talk a little bit about how we enact this voice and choice and try to connect it to some research that I found as I was preparing. So to begin, again, I wanted to talk about two stories, both about Sarah's. The first is my daughter, Sarah, who just turned five today. So I think I've mentioned this briefly before, but just as a reminder, so the f- so fourth, fifth week of homeschooling, 
the first two weeks of homeschooling. And remember, I've, I've shared that I'm a planner. I love to do to-do lists and I am definitely type A. I used to be as type A as they come. I've sort of eased back on that for reasons we don't need to go into right now. But with that as the backdrop, you could imagine that the first few weeks of homeschooling for my kids were scheduling, right? Tight schedule. I had a whiteboard that I brought down into our one-room schoolhouse, which is our playroom. I had my daughter's easel that has a whiteboard that had a project to-do list. And I also added sort of a little corner to-do list with Colby's sort of second grade activities that he needed to do. So I had lots of to-do lists and lots of scheduling, tight scheduling, minute by minute. The night before, I was researching science experiments, thinking about books that we could read, that Colby could read to the twins, math activities, how I was going to integrate math into what the twins like to do with respect to Magnus Hiles and Legos and lots of other activities. As I said, I just have so much gratitude for our K-12 teachers. This is so much work, and I'm just like completely out of my element here. By week three, I was pretty much out of ideas, and well, at least one morning I was anyway. So you see, it's interesting. As homeschool started, I was getting up. I've always been an early riser, but when I started homeschooling the kids, I knew I had to get up even earlier to get some of my own work done so I'd be ready to homeschool. Well, My daughter is an early riser, and so she also started a routine where she would get up earlier than her brother, so maybe, I don't know, 20 of 7. She would join me at the kitchen table for some work and morning coloring. And then, you know, when it was time to go get her brothers up, we would go up and get them up, get dressed, make breakfast, and then she and I would make the morning schedule on our whiteboard. And actually, it was was actually kind of fun because she looked forward to it. She liked to watch to see what how the day was going to unfold. And I would read to her what we were going to do. Well, again, in this third week, I was almost out of activities and ideas. So I think it was like the second day of the third week. I'm writing the schedule. And I seriously, as I said, the schedule is like, I guess, in like half hour blocks. And so I wrote, I always write morning meeting because that's where we go over the schedule, the day of the week, what we're going to do. So I'm writing up the schedule And when I got to the 10.30 a.m. block, I really had nothing in my head, absolutely nothing out of ideas. I was tired. I was in disbelief of this situation. I was thinking about all the other work I had to do. And I was just looking at my daughter and I could see she was waiting for me to write something. So I did the only thing I could think of. I wrote three big question marks. Well, I had no idea what Sarah's reaction was going to be, but to my delight and apparently to hers, she exclaimed, mystery. And I said, yes, it's a mystery block. And you and your brothers get to choose what goes in that part of the school schedule. Now, little did I know, although it did dawn on me after she said it, what she was really referring to is, I don't know if any of you eat those dum-dum lollipops. I'm sorry, I know the name is silly, but that's what they're called, those little dum-dum lollipops. Well, our kids love them. So we buy a pretty good size bag and just, you know, divvy it out over over time. And in the bags with all the different kinds of flavors, they actually have a lollipop that has question marks all over the wrapping. Have you seen this? Well, what it is, is it's actually called mystery flavor. And so you don't know what the flavor is before you unwrap the wrapper. And so I didn't realize this until she started talking about it a little bit more. But our kids love this idea and they love to get that flavor because I guess it's sort of a surprise. And so when Sarah saw the question marks, she associated the question marks with the deliciousness of the mystery lollipop. And so she was super excited. Well, what I came to realize is that a mystery block offers an opportunity for me to take a little bit of rest and step back and not overtax myself (laughs) trying to come up with all these activities. And she and her brothers get a chance to engage and come up with ideas of their own. So that's what I mean when I refer to this idea of bringing the mystery back into teaching and learning. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about what we could do with mystery blocks 
what happens when facilitators, leaders, teachers use the idea of a mystery block and why we should all try to enact this in our own practice. The other story is a short one, and I really just want to share it because it just warms my heart when I think about my grandmother, who is also a Sarah. And as I've said before, I spent a lot of free time, um, you know, with my grandparents at their house because they lived on the river. I was lucky enough, you know, to visit them often. They didn't live too far away. And so we were swimming and boating and crabbing and doing all those sorts of things. So when I was thinking about a story I could share about my grandmother, it dawned on me that my grandmother inserted in her own way this idea of mystery blocks and choices. And so our choices might have been a little bit different. We definitely had choices in terms of what we wanted to do, have for meals, and what times we might do things. And so when I thought about the choices we had, I thought about things like chicken necks or frozen hot dogs. Now, that might sound weird, and no, it wasn't our dinner choices. If you remember on a previous episode, I talked about crabbing on my grandparents' pier. Well, remember the bait, if you remember the story, were frozen chicken necks, and we would tie them to a line to catch the crabs. Well, the other secret bait that my grandmother always kept in her freezer were frozen hot dogs, partly because they actually did catch fish, but the other reason, to be honest, is there was no way I was going to put a worm on my hook. Let's just be honest. That's disgusting. So my grandmother would keep frozen hot dogs in her freezer, and then she would ask us, chicken necks or frozen hot dogs? And essentially, we got to choose. Are we crabbing today or are we going fishing? So that was one way she installed a mystery block. Of course, we did lots of singing growing up. So we often heard, do you want to go singing on a bike ride or on a boat ride? Swimming in the river or at the beach? And the last one is one of my favorites and always drives my mom crazy. Winter coat in the dryer or not in the dryer before school? You see, I told you my grandparents, well, they're grandparents, right? They have a different role. And they, I think part of the role of grandparents is to spoil the grandkids and spoil us. She did. Every so often, my parents would go away um, to some tropical island or go on a cruise or go to Bermuda in the winter. And so we would, to our great delight, we would go and stay with my grandparents. And I can remember one winter, it was particularly cold. We stayed with my grandparents for a week. And before we left for school, she would drive us to school when we stayed with her she threw my winter coat in the dryer. And why did she do this? Tell me this. Why would you put a winter coat in the dryer? Well, it's obvious because it gets it warm. So when you go outside in the cold, you're still warm. Well, when I went home and my mom was back from vacation and I was getting ready for school and my mom went to get my coat and put it on me, she said that I asked her why she didn't put my coat in the dryer. And she sort of looked at me with, you know, that mom sort of look. So anyway, that is certainly another kind of mystery block that my grandmother always inserted into my life. And I am so grateful for all the choices she gave us. And even those those are seem pretty simple or simplistic and basic. It just still reminds me and makes me believe, even though I didn't maybe put two and two together when she was alive. But man, oh, man, my grandmother my grandmother was really one of my first teachers. I mean, truly, she was using sort of some of the most effective strategies um, early on. So we were always co-constructing our time together. She never, th- I, she never thought about it. I never said anything, but she really was one of my first teachers. So, so those are my stories about Sarah and Sarah and the different ways that we can create mystery blocks in our lives. And when I come back from this quick break, I'm going to talk a little bit about voice and choice, the research behind a mystery block, considerations for the facilitator, and then finally how we enact voice and choice. Thanks so much for sticking around. This is Tell Me This, and I am your host, Carrie Borkowski, and I'll be right back. All right. Thanks for coming back. This is Tell Me This, a podcast about belonging and community. And if you can believe it, we are at episode 14, Lollipop Lesson, Putting the Mystery Back in Teaching and Learning. And as my daughter reminded me, giving students 
colleagues, friends, family, community members, choice and engagement opportunities in in meetings and schedules and routines um, can really be a good thing. And I and I was thinking about this idea of voice and choice, right? It's that you're empowering people to to give their two cents, to contribute in important ways. And you're also giving individuals choices, right? So that maybe there's a goal, you set a goal together and you give them ideas about how it could be achieved, but you also leave room for choices. And so talk about voice and choice a little bit. And really, I'm not going to bring a lot of literature right now because I'm going to talk about that literature in a few minutes. (coughs) But this idea of autonomy, certainly building this idea of belonging, because if you remember, belonging really is both the feelings we have about our own contributions, our unique contributions to a space, but also the feelings and expression of belonging that are emoted by, expressed by groups and individuals in that space, and the extent to which you're able to create those mystery blocks and invite engagement certainly acts to cultivate belonging in those individuals and in those groups. Additionally, it certainly empowers students and individuals. I can tell you now my kids, you know, seem more excited. And and the the next point I was going to make is it sometimes can spark interest and motivation. So this combination of empowerment, interest and motivation, sometimes they're almost sitting on the edge of their seat because they want to have a say in what that mystery block might be. They want to lead it. They want to give an idea and they want to see that idea sort of realized up on that whiteboard and then show me um, how to enact it during the day, which is really exciting. So autonomy, a sense of autonomy and self-determination, belonging, empowering, building interest and cultivating motivation, and also a sense of creativity. So the last two I also think are related in the sense that it's just also really good modeling practice, right? So you're showing other members of the group, however you're defining that group, that you're able to trust and that you're able to be flexible and open to ideas, that you're trying to cultivate a climate of belonging. And this really does promote a space for creativity because what it does is it gives people a sense of, well, I should make a suggestion that it's okay to fail, that we'll iterate, that we'll make changes, that we'll flex and we'll move and we'll change when needed. So these things all together, voice and choice, in my own experience, in my practical experience, have led to just better, more productive, more valuable, enriching days for both the group members as well as the facilitator. And I did, um, when I was doing the the preparation for the podcast, I mean, there's, as I said, there's so much literature out there on co-construction of knowledge. So I tried to pull from a couple of different areas. So I actually found an article related to education space, an article in the public health sector, which I thought was relevant given, you know, the backdrop of COVID-19. And then I found an article in the entrepreneurship space. So I just wanted to briefly share these with you. And if I'll post them on the website, whatsourstory.com, if you want to take a look at them later. The first one is by Percy Stefano, Kidwell, and Ramirez, 2015, Co-Constructing Practice in an Online ESOL Literacy Methods Course. And the long and short of it was this was about you know, new teachers, teachers in training, working with their coaches and their facilitators, their mentors, and the value behind and the value and benefits of collaborative coaching and feedback. So really opportunities for interaction with peers and working in collaboration with others. And what the research showed is together they could achieve higher levels of knowledge, of practice, of understanding, and just so that, so the individual effort versus the collective effort, they just saw greater value in the collective effort. They also, the researchers also talked about this notion of co-construction of practice, where these students had an opportunity to discuss and dialogue about lesson plans, ideas, implement some of those ideas, 
iterate and flex those ideas together, again, co-constructing so that they might come in with different approaches to a lesson plan and then together they would come up with an even better plan. And, and there was another point, which I thought was really interesting, is that just creating this time and space for feedback led to collective engagement where individuals often felt more present, that there was real-time construction of ideas, and then, of course, the notion that you're able to build relationships because through all of that work together, presenting ideas, sharing ideas, giving constructive feedback to each other, and then receiving it, what's happening there? You know, Tell me this. When you're put in a situation, in a group, and you're able to co-construct knowledge and practice and share feedback, what else is going on there? You're building trust. You're building relationships. You're creating a space where people feel like they matter and they belong. And that just manifests a willingness to create and share and perhaps to be vulnerable, right? To take risk and to face uncertainty, uncertainty with some courage. So even just the simple practice of co-constructing between, you know, learning teachers and their mentors can just have exponential benefits all around. So that was in the education space. Interestingly, I found one in the public health space, and it was um, written by Pratt in 2019, and it's called Engagement as Co-Constructing Knowledge, a Moral Necessity in Public Health Research. And when this author was talking about engagement, he was really talking about I say he, I can't remember if it's a he or she. So Pratt was really talking about this idea of collaboration and sharing of information and sharing of knowledge and listening to each other. So it's not engagement in the sense of participation, like if you were in a classroom, but almost like this you know, mutual participation or reciprocity that's going on between or among the researchers the users, and other beneficiaries or stakeholders. Um, This author actually argues that it's an ethical essential to co-construct this knowledge in in the area of public health. And Pratt notes this notion of a commitment to social justice. And if you remember in earlier podcasts, we talked a lot about social justice and Merton and this notion of really engaging participants and those who are experiencing these problems, right, significantly experiencing these problems to understand their experience and not let your own judgments and assumptions sort of be imposed upon how you approach the research. It's also a way to maximize social knowledge and this idea of many ways of knowing. So it's this notion that a researcher comes to the table with a particular set of understanding and knowledge folks who are significantly affected by the problems and challenges that are under research also come to the table with unique experiences and a lens perhaps different than the researcher. And there are other stakeholders surrounding or within the problem that also bring different, although maybe overlapping perspective. And so co-construction of that knowledge, the many ways of knowing bring together this social knowledge that can often lead to better, more effective, and perhaps more quickly implemented ways to address these injustices. Um, The authors conclude by, again, sharing, as, as I said earlier, remember, I was talking about creating collective engagement, building relationships and trust from the education article. Well, this author talks about self determination. So this idea that you're engaged in the decision-making process and you feel like you have a means and a way to voice your ideas and opinions. So perhaps that's similar to empowerment. You're participating in those decisions. And again, it's many ways of knowing, which in in some ways is, again, the collective engagement. So so in the public health sector, you can also see how co-construction of knowledge um, is important to the process. Now, It's not building in mystery blocks, right, in the same way that I've been talking about it with respect to schedules and how Sarah got excited about being able to put something she wanted to do in there. But I think you could make the argument that the mystery block in perhaps the public health article could be 
as you think about a research design, right? So when we talk in research, when we talk about a research design, it's sort of you have a purpose, research questions, and from those questions, you start a recruitment process, a data collection process, analysis, reporting of findings, et cetera. Perhaps what that mystery block in research design is creating intentional space to be with and engage with the participants who are on the ground, like really engaging, listening, talking to each other, asking them questions, the researcher receiving questions and responding. So the mystery block in that case is not maybe choosing an activity, but creating space for who knows what, right? Um, my friend Brianne, who was on the podcast last week, she and I like to call them no agenda agendas. So maybe you're coming together with a, a purpose of connection and understanding and you know this idea of social knowledge, but with no particular order to what's going to happen. So I still think mystery blocks could be relevant in that public health space. And the last one I pulled for today is around entrepreneurship. Um, it's called Exoskeletons, Entrepreneurs, and Communities, a Model of Co-Constructing a Potential Opportunity. And this is Sieb, Shepard, and Williams. And I think it's Sieb. I apologize if I didn't pronounce it right. S-E-Y-B, Shepard and Williams, 2019. And this article really notes that oftentimes the literature on entrepreneurship and sort of the ways of being an entrepreneur focus on individual level processes and outcomes. And in this article, they focus on the power of collective analysis and communication and communities to leverage an opportunity. So this idea that the ability to collect information, to sort of retrieve and integrate and use different bits of information and ideas, that really happens better in a collective setting with multiple people at the table who, again, bring different experiences, expectations, and understandings. The other thing they mention, which is really interesting and cool, that comes not just from this article, but I'm reading this great book. It's called Deliberately Developing Organizations. And I apologize, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't have the author. But in this article and this book, they talk about this idea of collaborative issue raising and discussion of conflict and disagreement in a group setting. So if you have key individuals, whether it's groups, whether it's in a classroom, in an organization, in a team, if you bring together the key players in that process who are experiencing some sort of conflict or issue, they argue that bringing them together to really openly talk about this may lead to improvements and better outcomes. Conducting meetings, reflection, sharing. Um, they talk about checking in and checking out. So checking in to see where everybody is today, emotionally and mentally. Doing checkouts to sort of check back in to see how everybody's feeling after the meeting. And really making plans as a community rather than from some hierarchical map or approach. And so, again, it's a different kind of mystery block, right? It's it's bringing people together around a challenging issue and working through it. And again, not having the sort of outcome planned. It's not necessarily having the course objective or the learning objective planned, but knowing that you needed to bring these individuals together to address an issue and in a lot of ways, stepping back as the facilitator and letting them start to work through it. So that gives you an idea, I hope, of voice and choice, some of the research behind a mystery block. And as I already said, mystery blocks can take lots of shapes and sizes. It could literally be a block in a schedule where you're letting students and members of teams pick what they want to do. It could be creating intentional space or no agenda agendas to discuss, engage in research and understanding problems and challenges so that the research can be better and interventions can be improved. It could also just be knowing that there are issues or conflicts that need to be worked out and bringing those folks together in a safe space so that they can try to work through them. So whatever the mystery block, whatever it looks like, whatever shape it takes, 
I think there's some research to suggest that we should be thinking about how we could implement these into our families, our community groups, our professional groups, our classrooms, in all different sorts of places. So when I come back, I'm going to wrap up with some, some thoughts for the facilitator of these kinds of meetings, other examples of how you can enact these mystery blocks into your own world, and then just some final thoughts and wrap up. All right. Thanks for sticking around. Again, this is Tell Me This, and I am your host, Carrie Borkowski. I look forward to coming back in a moment. Thanks. Hey, everybody. This is Carrie Borkowski. Welcome back to Tell Me This, episode 14. I'm talking about putting the mystery back in teaching and learning. Mystery, of course, defined broadly. Mystery blocks, open and intentional spaces for discussions that have no agenda, perhaps managing issues and challenges that don't have a learning objective, don't have clear rules and guidelines, but are just an opportunity to sort of navigate and work through these conflicts as a group. And so to really make this happen, to enact a mystery block and also have it implemented in an effective way, the facilitator has to play a particular role. And it's not always easy. I will be honest this is not always easy for me because I like to talk, I like to plan, I like to be in control, I like to share my opinion, et cetera, et cetera. And really for these mystery blocks to work, you as a facilitator or your group as facilitators need to take a breath, pause, and step back. You really need to relinquish control. You have to trust the participants and let them know that you trust them you know, even when they're five, I need to trust my kids that they can come up with a good plan. I have to be flexible as a facilitator and leader of these kinds of meetings. You have to figure out a way either to not show your discomfort or discontent with the way things are moving or get comfortable with the way things are going when they're not going in the way you had hoped. And along with flexibility, you have to figure out ways to um, interrupt or, um, you know, engage with the conversation when you need to sort of move it back into a particular sphere because you don't want it to completely go off the rails because that's not effective either. So you have to figure out ways to be the diplomat to sort of acknowledge and continue to trust the participants and their process, but also sort of put in little guideposts and reminders to keep them on track. So that flexibility one can be a little bit tricky. Um, so it's a, it's sort of a, a combination of control and flexibility, right? You're trying to ease up on the controls and give some flexibility, but also sort of manage just ever so slightly. You also need to be willing to give yourself and others the permission to fall short. Look, when you create these no agenda, agenda meetings, when you create these intentional spaces, part of the beauty of these spaces is the not knowing and the uncertainty. You really often don't know where things are headed. What that also could mean is that when you come out of these moments, there may be some great learning and there may be some great accomplishments, but it might not check everything off of your to-do list. And the way that this is effective is you've got to be okay with that. You've got you've to trust the process and know that eventually all of that stuff on your to-do list is going to get checked off. So I think a good example, at least, and again, I'm sorry if you don't have kids, but think about remote work, right? If, if you're working, if you're engaging with other groups and you have a, a to-do list for the week, whether it's homeschooling, whether it's your own school, whether you're teaching other students or it's your professional work in some other context, you have a to-do list. Well, if you're able to enact these mystery blocks, it's possible that you will go very deep and get very invested and learn a lot about maybe item number three on your to-do list, but it'll be at the detriment of two and four on the to-do list. But what you have to trust is that you'll get there 
and that the quality time you're spending on item three, maybe that'll inform the way in which you approach two and four, and it'll make getting to those easier and more efficient. Who knows? Maybe it'll even check one of those off of the list because you covered something in item three. So you have to trust the process and allow yourself the time to explore the things that you're going to explore. And the last one I would remind you of, besides relinquishing control, trusting the participants, showing some flexibility, and giving yourself and your group permission to fall short, is that you just, again, even if they're four and a half, five, six, eight, or 15, you have to be open to others' ideas. If you're going to offer a mystery block, if you're going to give people space to share, to contribute, to you know, express their own ideas and be part of the decision making. You have to be open to their ideas because I can tell you that if you create a space of trust and you promote and support people being vulnerable in those spaces and when they share, if you shut them down because you're not open, you've just destroyed a lot of the work that you tried to do. And believe me, it will take you a long time to get that back. Because if someone is being vulnerable for the first time, and you immediately shut them down, you know, tell me this, do you really think they're going to try they're going to risk being vulnerable again? Probably not, or at least not for a while. So that openness one is also very, very important. All right. So the last piece I wanted to talk about, so we looked at the research around mystery blocks. I talked a little bit about the role of the facilitator. And the last one was really just to remind you of some ways that you can enact this voice and choice. I've talked about mystery blocks, so adding them to the school schedule, add them to a meeting, to a play date, to your own schedule, um, to to anything going on in the week, the to-do list. No agenda, agenda meetings are awesome. I love these. These are great sort of get-togethers when you have a little bit of stuff that you want to cover, but you really just want to give people some space to talk, to share. Maybe, again, going back to that public health research article, you've disseminated the research findings to the participants who are most affected by this problem and perhaps would be receiving this intervention. You offer a no agenda agenda just to talk about, to get their reaction, to get their experiences and Those conversations, if done well, can be super effective. Another way to enact voice and choice is through office hours, virtual happy hours. I know people are doing like virtual um, house parties, lunches, coffee hours, what, what coffee house, whatever your metaphor is, again, creating that intentional space. And lastly, and I didn't really talk about this one too much, um, but when you are having students, colleagues, other employees work on projects, assignments, tasks. I like to invoke something I call choose your own adventure and maybe I am showing my age. But if you remember those books, choose your own adventure, you literally, the ending could be different depending on the person who read it because of the way that you could choose the way the book ended. And so I often, even with my doc students, I will for like the final assignment in a class, for example, I will let them choose how they want to wrap up the class. Is it a presentation? Is it a paper? Is it a debate? Is it a podcast? Is it whatever it is? Just let them make the choice. And so that's another way to create a mystery block. And again, it empowers them. It shows that you trust them. You give them some of the decision making. And oftentimes, I mean, at least in my experience, the assignments that students create and and the choices they make with respect to the tasks, wow, it's so much better than what I ever could have come up with myself. So, so mystery blocks in schedules, no agenda, agenda meetings, virtual office hours of some sort, and giving giving people choices in projects and tasks and how to accomplish things on their to do list. So, so I hope you enjoyed this little story, this episode about lollipop lesson and trying to put the mystery back in teaching and learning and the co-construction of knowledge and schedules and ideas and leveraging opportunities and entrepreneurship. I really enjoyed sharing this one. I think partly because I just love still remembering the joy that my daughter expressed as she realized that I was writing question marks in the schedule. 
Every day that we make the schedule, she asks when we get a mystery block. And I also love that I'm learning right alongside my kids. I fail at this all the time and probably have been apologizing on a regular basis to my kids since we started homeschooling. But I do think there are moments when we're all clicking and we're all learning together. It really is kind of beautiful if you stop and think about it. So that roller coaster, it's kind of scary, kind of tiring, kind of dizzying, but it can also be a lot of fun. I also believe even more now that we do need to trust our participants, empower each of them to engage, make choices, offer ideas, and make decisions. Believe me, this is not easy, especially for those of us who like control, schedules, a plan, and just knowing what's coming. I will say, however, if you can try just one of these strategies, a no agenda agenda meeting or a mystery block, I think the stress you may feel around giving up some of the control will be mitigated by the relief and benefits you experience at not having to be wholly responsible for everything on an agenda, in a day, or in a plan. Let others engage and help. It does not have to be your sole responsibility. So as we continue to manage this COVID-19 pandemic and everything that accompanies these challenging moments, I'm going to try to remember to give myself a break to give myself permission to slow down and to ask my kids and my colleagues to figure out part of the work, use a mystery block, show up for office hours and let the students run the show. We know that there is a shared vulnerability in these feelings and experiences around the pandemic. We also know that the way through it is to continue to share and let everyone participate in the decision-making and planning, even the eight-year-olds and the five-year-olds in the room. So, I hope everyone has a safe and healthy week, and I ask that each of us add three mystery blocks this week. You do not have to do it every day. Please ease into the change, but find three ways this week where you can create space for change, flexibility, no agenda, and just moments that are not on anyone's schedule. Let your colleagues decide part of a meeting. Empower your students to select their assignment. And please, if you have kids, give them space in your homeschool schedule to do well, whatever comes to mind. And as important, I urge you to use one of those mystery blocks for your own schedule. Put something in your Outlook calendar, in your Google calendar, in your to-do list, however you keep your planner. Put a mark in a couple of days this week that are mystery blocks. You don't know what you might want to do. Maybe you'll go for a walk. Maybe you'll read a book. Maybe you'll listen to some music really loud on your headphones. Whatever it is, who cares? Create a mystery block. Give yourself some space. And please remember, I'm a work in progress. We are a work in progress. Be patient and kind to yourself and and to others in this week. Be well, be healthy, be safe. And thanks for listening. This is, this is Tell Me This, and I am your host, Carrie Borkowski. Thanks so much for listening to episode 14, Lollipop Lesson, Putting the Mystery Back in Teaching and Learning.